Hello and welcome to the Village Church Podcast. My name is John and we are glad to have you join us. We work to deliver our most recent preaching content to you as soon as possible, so let's get into God's Word together. So for those that don't know, I know um, I saw quite a few new faces today. Uh, We are certainly glad you're here. I am not a pastor. I am a member of the Village Church of Byron. Happy to be so excited and encouraged to be in a committed relationship with other church members and our brothers and sisters in Christ. Pastor John, the, the gentleman that did the announcements and the prayer, that's he's our, our pastor right now. We've been praying through a season to add more elders to the church, but for right now, he's it. So I am personally incredibly humbled and blessed to, to be here, to have the fortitude to stand in front of the church and open God's word and share what it says with you. Today we're going to be in Exodus chapter 34, and for the next two weeks we're going to be here, and so I need to give some historical background, the context of where we're at in this chapter so that it's all fresh in our minds. I hope, I hope we're all students of the Bible and we all know what happens in Exodus, what the, the big story here is, but I want to walk through some of the events that have led the Israelite nation up to where they're at right now. So the Bible itself is, for the first um, few books, Genesis through about Kings, is, is basically a chronological narrative. It goes um, in the order of how things happen, starting with creation and Genesis and working up until about the exile um, to, Babylon, to, the, um, to Babylon. So, in where we're at here in the 34th chapter of Genesis, the second book of the Bible, um, a lot has happened. It's, we're, we're several thousand years already into the history of man, and we need to, to review just a few points here. So, back in Genesis 15, we saw God make a covenant with Abraham. And in this covenant, God promised some things to Abraham and to the Israelite nation. He promised to give them their own land, to make the nation great, a lot of people, and to give them great possessions. That's part of that covenant relationship that he built through Abraham. And that was only going to happen after a time when they were servants in a land that was not their own. So jump ahead 700 or so years, and what we see happening in in the first chapters of this book is God busting the Israelites out of that captive state. He brings them out of Egypt by the power of his hand, and he is in the process right here of making them that great nation. So Exodus 12 tells us there was about 600,000 men that walked out of Egypt from the captivity. And it says there was uh, women and children and a varied multitude that went with them. So we're talking a million plus people walked out of Egypt after the ten plagues. After God showed his power in Egypt, this great number, great multitude walked out because of his protection, his design, his rule over them and the Egyptians. So God was showing his power in these events and he led them out and is now making them officially, if you will, his chosen nation. So in the early chapters of Exodus, the Israelites were a captive slave nation to the Egyptians. In chapters 11 and 12, they went from that slave nation really overnight into a wealthy independent nation. Chapter uh, 11 of Exodus, we see on the eve of the last plague, God commanded the Israelites to go to to their neighbors and to ask for uh, jewelry, precious gold and, and silver and whatnot. And through the blessing of the Lord, as he acted on the Egyptians, they gave all this precious gold, this precious metals to the Uh, Israelites on the eve of them walking out of Egypt. So we see God's favor 
for the Israelites. We see his sovereignty over the Egyptians. And then that night, we see God kill every firstborn creation in the land of Egypt. We see God's power over his, his creation. What a, a combination of a terrible and terrific display of God's power, of his sovereignty, of what he can and will do with his creation according to his will and his plan. And the only firstborn children that, that were saved in that terrible night were those that were covered by the blood of the Lamb. So the next day, a large, wealthy, independent nation walked out of Egypt under the protection of God. He was faithful to them. He was faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. He was faithful to those promises that he made. And now in between Exodus 11 and where we're going to start today in Exodus 33, 34, right in there, God has already provided many other things to that nation. He... Um, he gave them protection by destroying their enemies. He gave them bread from heaven and water from a rock as they were wandering through the wilderness. He is now creating a system of organization for that nation. He's organizing the Israelites under his rule, giving them specific laws and ceremonies, rules that they have to follow in order to be his people. So chapter 19 God personally met with the Israelites at Mount Sinai. He was seen by the Israelites in a thick cloud that was accompanied by thunder and lightning, and his very presence shook the mountain when his presence came down on it, and he displayed himself, a manifestation of his glory, of his presence to the Israelites there on that mountain. A heavenly trumpet blast announced he was here. There was, it was not a trumpet of this world that came from heaven. One of the angels of the world blew a trumpet and said, this is God. We see his power. We can see his majesty. We can see him control the earth with nothing but what he has coming from him. And then God gave, gave the law, the organization, to Moses on top of that mountain. And... In chapter 24, I think it was, the people of Israelite ratified that covenant, uh, another covenant with God. They took animal blood and the priest sprinkled some animal blood on the altar of God, signifying God's part of this covenant. And he sprinkled some blood on the people, signifying the people's admission and inclusion in this covenant. And so the people and God both consciously made a decision to come into this covenant relation together. And right after that happened, when Moses was up on the mountain getting the law from God, the people basically turned around and committed the most heinous sin you can commit against God. Idolatry. They turned from that God that they had just committed to, a blood covenant commitment with, with the living God that had just shown his providence, his power, his sovereignty, his blessing to them, bringing them out of slavery, making them this nation, giving them possessions, and basically, I, I don't know 100% if they could see it or not, but I'm going I'm to say that they could. God's right there on the mountain talking to Moses in the cloud with thunder and lightning. And basically, they turn around and a minute later, they're like, Aaron, make us a calf. They couldn't remain sinless for a minute. And in the presence of God, they sinned in front of him. While that's a very dramatic picture, it's nothing else besides what we do every day. In the presence of God, we are sinners. He sees us. He knows us. He knows the thoughts of our heart. He sees what our actions are. And while he may not be right there shaking a mountain, he knows what we're doing, what we're up to, when we're worshiping a golden calf. <clears throat> I think it's, 
it's important that we wrestle down that clarity that we are the Israelites. There's never been anybody born of this earth that wasn't of that image. Whether before them or after them, we're all sinners born into a broken and a corrupt world. The sin of Adam has spread so far, so vast, so powerfully onto this earth that the very creation itself groans waiting for the new birth. May we never recognize ourselves as sinless before a holy God. So the Israelites had seen God's steadfast love. He had seen them, he had seen, they had seen God pour out his love to them over a long period of time. He showed his grace, giving them what they didn't deserve. He showed his mercy, not giving them what they do deserve. He showed his love by giving them blessings and they sinned in front of him. So the question I want to propose to you is, are you looking for God? Do you see God in the midst of everyday life? Does he have to come down and shake a mountain and be a a pillar of cloud and speak through lightning in order for you to recognize his presence? Or do you in your everyday life, recognize God the creator, God the sustainer, God the savior? Are you looking for him without him being that magnificent manifestation and presence? Do you recognize God for his actions or do you recognize God for who he is? We can see him because of his actions. Romans tells us we can recognize God because of creation, but we can't intimately know God unless we study his word. Divine revelation, illumination only comes from God's word by the work of the Holy Spirit. So we need to recognize those powerful moments, but we need to also consciously remember and think about God is here constantly in the midst of us all the time. And we should not be turning our back on him and rebelling and sinning in grievous ways. So while I know that was a lot, it builds to where we're at here in these chapters and going forward today and next week, it's going to be um, an important thing for us to keep in our minds of this is what's happened in the history of man up until now. There's, there's a whole lot of history and revealing of God that has happened after that. But for the Israelites right here, there's some new things going on. In chapter 33, um, in a minute we're going to start reading here at verse 18. And basically what's happened is Moses was up on the mountain with God. He came down. He got mad and broke the tablets because the Israelites sinned. And then God, in his mercy and grace and love, called Moses back to the mountain and said, let's do this again. It's a do-over. I'm going to give you a do-over, right? So Moses gets to come back up on the mountain, get the law and the tablets again, and we're right in between those two events. And so God is talking to Moses and Moses says in verse 18, Please show me your glory. And he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So the first few verses in chapter 4 set up this, this history we've been talking about. Moses walks back up on the mountain, obedient to the command of the Lord, And we're going to start again reading in verse 5. 
of chapter 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm going to stop right here because there is a lot that we're going to, we're going to talk about and look at from this proclamation this declaration of the Lord to his mediator, Moses. And we're just going to talk about that much today. So what we see is in this situation, God is visibly present. He is a manifestation. And he is verbally present. He speaks to Moses, this is who I am. So in the history of the world up until now, God has shown himself. There has been all these great and magnificent and powerful acts that show who God is. This is the first time in the Old Testament, and the old time, only time in the Old Testament, a couple of these things are said, but it's the first time that God uses these words to describe himself. So now if we put ourselves in their position, without the New Testament, without knowing Jesus the risen Christ has come, we look at ourselves, this situation from where the, the Israelites would be, God just came down and he is explaining verbally, this is what you saw. This is me. I am God. This is who I am. He's made other statements about himself, but up until this point, he's never said something like this. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. <clears throat> I think we can perhaps better recognize this if we think of an illustration. If you think of Christmas time and how excited children get when they see a present with just a little bit of the, the wrapping tore off, it gets under the tree and maybe the cat got to it or the corner got tore or something. And you can, you can see a little bit of what's inside of that, that present, what's, what's behind the wrapping. Children have a tendency to get more excited about that than we do as adults. But the mystery that is partially revealed inside of that present, that should be exciting to us when we, we put ourselves in the position of looking at God. He continually, throughout his word, start to finish, progressively reveals more and more and more about himself to us. So if we, with a children's heart, look at, look at the, the partially revealed mystery of who God is, we should be excited about that. We should be encouraged about, look at what God showed me about himself. That's what's happening right here. God is, is, he's just pulled the veil back a little bit and he's showing the Israelites, telling the Israelites, this is who I am. This is why I have this relationship with you. This is me. So this instance, it's a big deal for mankind because it's the first time they've ever seen this. Verse 5 says, the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. On its own, the first phrase, the Lord descended, should be something that really impacts us. Because we're talking about the God of all creation, the God that is shaking the mountain, the God that, according to his sovereignty, destroyed the firstborn of Egypt. That God came down and is on the mountain with Moses. Not in all his glory. The end of chapter 33, we read that if we are to see all his glory, we couldn't survive. He is so magnificent, so powerful, and because he is holy and without sin, if we looked him fully in the face in this temporary body, it would completely destroy us. So he, in his graciousness and in his mercy, has came down from heaven, his abode, the place where he has chose to most magnificently display his glory. 
and he has came down in a way that we can see him and we can understand a little bit of who he is. It's not the first time that's happened. It's the first time it's happened in this way, but it's not the first time he's, he's came down to man. God came to Abraham in Genesis 18, and he came to Jacob in the latter chapters of Genesis, both times as a manifestation, as a visual appearance of something that man could recognize as this is God. This is an angel of the Lord. This is God. And Abraham, um, Abraham saw this when God made the covenant with him. And Jacob saw this uh, several times, actually, once when he wrestled with God, because Jacob was a jerk. And just like the Israelites, we ought to be able to see our similarity with Jacob. Jacob 32, I think, he wrestled with God all night, and God popped his hip out of socket, and Jacob limped for the rest of his life because he wrestled with God. The point being, the omnipresent God, who is everywhere, shows himself to us, sometimes in these visible manifestations, and sometimes in his creation. When he comes down to heaven, makes himself visible in the way that he has here with Moses, we need to take notice because we've never seen anything like this. So he came down and he said, I am the Lord. These are some of my attributes. And now take this and meld it with what you've already seen me do. I am the Lord that did those things in Egypt. I provided for you there. I provided for you in the wilderness. I protected you. I gave you food and shelter and clothing. And here I am now in your presence telling you this is why I've done that. Because this is who I am, not just what I am. If we continue on to verse 6, we see the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Again, this is something that we can recognize in our lives today. We see God's glory and his goodness pass before us in the midst of his creation. We are living and abiding in his creation and we can see his goodness pass before us. Not like Moses did. Moses saw his back and all his goodness and what an awesome sight that must have been. But we need to recognize God gives us this as well. We get to see God do good things. We need to look for and recognize the goodness of God when it passes by us. We don't get all that God is. We can't handle all the glory of God, but we can see and we can recognize when we look for that was God. Look what he did. That was awesome. He was good in this situation and I recognized it. So we see in this situation there's a, a difference between us and God. There's this great, great vast distance between who God is and who we are as his creation. And that's one of the things we need to recognize in this, and in, in, in this message today I hope you walk away with, is how awesome God is. He is transcendent and infinite and eternal, and he is merciful and graceful and show, slow to anger, and we're not. We are made in his image, but we are corrupted because of sin, and we are not God, nor do we perfectly represent God. We can be seen to represent him when he regenerates our soul and he works through us, and by the changes in us, we begin to walk towards holiness, the perfect, pure holiness that he is. But there is this great separation between us. (laughs) 
not everything that we see is good. The sin of Adam, again, was so profound that it has corrupted this earth. And what we see when it is not the divine image of God has been corrupted by sin. Yet God is constantly involved in the affairs of this world. We see that all throughout Scripture. We've seen it up, up until we're at here in the second book, and you'll see it in the rest of the book, and you'll see it today. If we went back to Exodus chapter 3, we would see Moses talking to God at the burning bush, and we would see God reveal himself to Moses. And in Exodus 3, 7, God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. He's watching who are in Egypt and who and have heard, he's listening, their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. God is intimately involved with us today. He knows what's happening in our lives and he knows what's going on. <clears throat> the curse of technology, I just did something that I wish I hadn't have done. So, there we are. If we went on from Exodus 3.7 into Exodus 3.9, the Lord would continue to say, The cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. They're clear statements about God mediating on the part of his people. God did that in Egypt. He made Moses to be the, the man that Moses is, and he used Moses as the mediator in between his nation and God. And we see God proclaim himself even more in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when he introduced himself to Moses from the burning bush, and Moses asked God who he was. He says, what is your name? When I go back to the Israelites and I tell them, hey, I met God in a burning bush, and who are you? Because God had not revealed this to mankind yet. God says, I am who I am. Then in verse 15, the great I am goes on to say that his name is Yahweh. When we read in the, in the ESV translation, if that's what you have, the Lord, that is the, the, the translation from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Some of you might be familiar with it as Jehovah. That's a, a more modern English translation of the same word. It is God's name. It is who he said he is. It's the self-proclamation of God. As he said, I am the great, I am the great I am. He is declaring his self-sufficiency his independence from man, his self-existence. This is God attributing or tying his attributes, his actions, his character into his name. If we went back to Genesis 1.1, we would see where God said, or, or it says, God created. So the, the first words in the Bible is not where did God come from, but he was self-existent. He existed, nothing else did. God is independent of all creation. He was there with no one else. And we need to recognize God for his self-sufficiency and his self-existence. And we need to remember when we hear the great I am, that's what he's talking about, or Yahweh, right. That wraps all this up into his name because he's describing himself. In the New Testament, James 1.17 says there is no variation of God. So that God that proclaimed himself in Genesis 1.1 and is describing himself here later, another 1,500 years from now, he says, I haven't changed. There is no shadow of change within me. I am the same then, I'm the same here, I'm the same forever. So back here in chapter 34... In, in verse 6, well, in verse 5, we see the word the Lord twice. In verse 6, we see it start off again with the Lord. And then he himself declares 
the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. So in this passage, the Lord is used five times. It, it, it should bring us to the conclusion of this is a very intimate passage between us and the Lord. He is saying, this is who I am. Recognize me as I recognize you. As I have came down from the mountain to recognize you, my creation, here I am. So prior to this, God has shown his faithfulness. He's shown his mercy. He's shown his grace. Now he is verbalizing who he is. He's saying, I am the God that made the covenant with Abraham. I am the God that you just covenanted with. I am the God that saved you from Egypt. I am the God of all creation. The list of, of actions we could look back at from the first couple chapters or the first couple books of the Bible here would be a long list, and, and we can kind of think of those in our mind, but the point being is that God has ruled, has provided for, has shown himself to be the power over creation since the beginning. <clears throat> so God is the eternal, self-existent God. He's merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Now this is, this is where things... In my ignorance, in, in broken humanity, in our separation from God of who we are and trying to determine all of who he is, this is where things can get difficult. God says, I am Yahweh, Yahweh. I am merciful. I am gracious. I am abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And now we come back to slow to anger. Why is this worded different? Because he is not angry. He is these other things, but he is slow to anger. Anger is not natural to him. It's not his baseline. It's not his foundation. It's not where he starts from. It is not, I want to say it's not natural to him, but that's probably not theologically correct because he does, it, it happens. As we try to put man's characteristics and what we know on God's eternal characteristics, we we see the word say he gets angry, but he is not angry. That's not who he is. So when we think about the baseline, the foundation, God's intrinsic nature, it is love and patience and mercy and grace. And from that, he can be angered, but it takes him a long time to do that. So the more glimpses we get of God, the more we ought to yearn for him. When he tells us who he is, when he shows us who he is, as he continues to pull back that veil and, and tear the paper on the present, and we see a little bit more of who God is, that ought to make us yearn for him more because it makes him that, it doesn't make him, it makes us realize more about how magnificent he is about how perfect and holy and pure and powerful he is. Because we, in our limited understanding and at the start of where we begin with our corrupted flesh and this corrupted earth, everything that is pure and holy and righteous about God is, is basically foreign to us. We're made in his image, but corrupted. So we need to put away the thoughts of man and we need to grab onto the truth of what God's word says when he shows himself and when he explains himself to us. At this point in history, nobody on the earth had seen more of God than Moses. Nobody had seen more magnificent works. Nobody had talked to him more. Nobody knew more about God than Moses. And Moses says, back in chapter 33, show me your glory. I want more. Show me more of who you are, Lord. Man, I hope that's where we're all at today. Are we yearning for more of God and less of sinful man, or are we yearning for more of sinful man and less of God? So what did God do? He came down and he revealed himself to Moses. He didn't owe Moses that. He didn't have to do it. 
but he did because he is a God of mercy and of grace, and he wants to show us who he is. God shows us mercy when he does not give us that which we deserve. The curse of sin that reigns in the world is an affront to God, and yet he still allows us to be here. He gives us blessings. He gives us gifts. He gives us life. He says he is a God of merciful and gracious. These two really can't, can't be separated. They can be described differently, but they can't be separated necessarily because when God gives us grace, he's also giving us mercy because if he didn't give us mercy, there wouldn't be anybody here in this room today. None of us would have made it out of bed this morning because we are or would have been condemned in our sin. Yet God shows us mercy and he shows us grace and he gives us not only what we don't deserve, but he did not give us that which we do deserve, which is condemnation. When we think of God's mercy, grace, and faithfulness, we can conclude that they are never-ending qualities of God. He has promised grace and mercy to us. The saints that live for all time in eternity with God will continue to see the, the abundance, the outpouring of God's mercy and grace for all time. He has promised that. We know it's coming, and we know it can't not come because God is faithful to himself. But it's, it's amazing to wrap our heads around the God who hates sin will continually forever and ever show his creation through his steadfast love grace, and mercy. I don't think one trumps the other. I don't think there, there's a priority there between grace and mercy. But when we come to slow to anger, this is, this is where things get difficult because how do, how do we understand the priority, the hierarchy? Is there one in the heart of or the soul of or the mind of God? Does one thing trump another? Is one more important? Does he have, does the infinite eternal God have more mercy than he has grace? I don't think we can know that, but we can know that he is slow to anger. We know that he has more mercy. He has shown us more mercy and grace than he has shown anger. And for that, we should be thankful. <clears throat> so we, we know that God is self-existent. He's eternal. In the book of John, the Apostle John tells us that God is love. We know that God is slow to anger. And we know that we exist because of his grace and his mercy. It's 1 John, actually, where, where the Apostle John says God is love. It's part of his foundational moral character. And we know that he can't veer from that because he's immutable and unchanging. In 2 Timothy, God says... He cannot deny himself. God cannot deny who he is, his, his being, his essence, his moral character. His, while, while we say they're his intrinsic ab, ab, uh, characteristics, that's really just who he is. We are trying to put words to that which has no bounds. God lives outside of what we can completely understand. He's self-sustaining and self-sufficient and perfect, and pure, and we can't add anything to that. We cannot add anything to God. He is independent, and self-sustaining, and self-sufficient from us. He can't be any more perfect if we give him something from us. He can't be any more pure if we give him something from us. He exists outside of us and his love for us was not caused by us. God's love for us is in an indescribable way independent of us because it comes from him. It's not a reaction of something that we did. It originated with he is the author of his love for all of mankind. Humanity is not the cause of God's love. 
God's love is the cause of humanity. Isn't that comforting to know that it's not because of us and it's not because of our actions that God chose to love us? God chose us. He made us, created us, authored us to be in his image. We, on the other hand, under the the curse of Adam and the curse of sin, we don't start from that baseline of love. That's not the foundation of man. We start with a perspective of selfishness. I need to take care of me. Right from the get-go. The baby's born and it cries because it needs something. It wants something for itself. We, because we are not independent and self-sufficient, we have to look to our own needs. We have to. It is, it is how we are made to be selfish, to care for ourselves, to care for others, to, to look to ourselves. So whether that's a, a full-blown conscious thought or a subconscious thought, it is basically where we start at our foundation. We're selfish because of the fall We're selfish because we're corrupted and because we're not self-existent. We can't survive outside of God's will for us to survive. The Gospel of John tells us that God, through Christ, created all things, sustains all things. We are dependent on God for our very life, our very existence. And the only reason we're here is because of his mercy and his grace in continuing to provide the power that enables us to live. God made the world and all the things for his son of whom and by whom all things exist. We exist and are upheld by the power of the word. According to his design and according to the time of his choosing, he exerted power to make us and to make us dependent upon him. This, uh, this should bring us fairly quickly to a, a thought and a question in our mind of if God is independent of us and God doesn't need us, why are we here? Because God loves us. It was his intentional design and outpouring his mercy and his grace and his power. We are here because God loves us and wants to spend eternity with those who love him. We need sunshine and rain. God wants nothing but our love and our faithfulness. Ephesians 2 tells us that because of God's great love for us, by his mercy and according to his grace, we are saved. There is nothing in this world besides God's grace and mercy that can save us from the condemnation of our sins. Our eternal life is based on and founded on the self-existent independence, love, mercy, and grace of God. God is faithful first, foremost, and always without exception to himself. That Second Timothy verse tells us that he cannot deny himself. So when we look at the characteristics of God, the attributes of God, his actions, what has he done for man, we can have great hope, great faith that because not just of what he's done, but because what he said and because of who he is, we can have hope in eternity. We can have hope that goes beyond this life. We can have hope to be with him, our creator, God. we cannot take away God's perfection. We don't have that kind of influence on the great I am. It'd be like throwing a pebble in front of the hypothetical unstoppable force. Except it's not really hypothetical because God is an unstoppable force. He's without fault. He's never failed. He has unlimited knowledge and power. And in his righteousness, he will always do the, the right thing. His unstoppable force will continue according to his design, his plan, his character for all time. There's one true living God and we are not him. Praise God that his moral character, his essence, his holiness, his purity does not depend on us. 
but we can also take great comfort that he does love us, that we are here because of his love. We are held because of his love. His promises will reign true because of his love. God's faithfulness and his self-sufficiency is not only a reason to be in awe of who he is, it's a reason that we should be absolutely 100% confident in who we are according to who he is. God gave us his word it was a gift of mercy and grace that we might know him. When we study his word and we put off the corruption of this world and we stop looking at God through the eyes of, of humanity and our sin and our human characteristics and we look at truly, we dig into and look at what God says. How do we take the English language in our perceptions and apply it to an eternal, infinite, holy God? This is something that we for the entirety of our life, need to struggle with. We're not God. He's independent of us. We need to put away us and put on him. We need to put away, well, God gets mad. Well, he does, but not in the way that we do. It's different. So we need to study the word, and we need to study the person of God. Who is he, and what has he done for us? Every time we do that, we, we tear off a little piece of that paper and we get a little bit better glimpse of who God is and what he's shown with us, or, or to us, rather. So we labor, we labor for survival because we have to or we die. That's our baseline, is selfishness. God's baseline is love. Self-existent, independent love. There's nothing that we can give to him except for our love and our faithfulness and of course the recognition of our sin. He is holy and will not dwell with the sin of mankind yet in his love for us he commands us by his law to, to come to him and repent of our sins, to tell him of our sins, to say Lord this is what I've done, this is who I am, I know that you are holy and pure and transcendent. You are far above me. My ways are not your ways, Lord, but this is me. And praise God that you love me anyway. When we confess our sins to him, that gives him delight. The song we just sang said, um, he delights in those who he saves. God delights in us. In whatever sense that we can, we can put God's heart and soul of his invisible spirit, however we recognize that in our own mind, we need to recognize out of his great love and mercy and grace, he delights in us. Praise God that he minds us at all. But he is a loving God, and he has promised to love us for eternity. And he comes to us in our sinful state. God shows himself to us in power and his word and, and in words and he cannot, he will not relent in his love for us. So just like God came down to Moses and his glory passed before him and Moses witnessed God, we need to recognize God comes to us in our sinfulness. He made us, he created us, he loves us and he comes to where we are. When we ask him, Lord, show me your glory, here he comes and he shows up and he says, this is me. This is who I am, the God of love and mercy and grace. That's the God that we need to seek after in the Bible. But it's not, it's not all of God. We, we can study and search our entire lives and never come to the ends of who God is in his infinite size in his eternal expanse of time. Next week, we're going to continue on this passage, taking these next couple verses where, it, where he gets into more of who he is. He talks about his steadfast love and his for, forgiveness and the transgression of man and the righteous punishment of sin. And we see Moses' proper reaction to him, bowing down to him, worshiping God for who he is. So I want to encourage you today and this week to concentrate on 
the love of God, the grace, the mercy, the peace that we can have knowing God. And if you want to look ahead to next week, we're going to talk about the righteousness of God and his justice for the, the creation that has sinned against him. If you would bow your heads and we'll pray. Lord, we are an undeserving people. We don't deserve your love. But we praise you, Lord, because you are independent of us. You are self-existent, eternal, infinite, holy, pure, mighty. Praise you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, I pray today that you will show more of yourself to us. Lord, help us understand in our ignorance and in our selfishness that you love us, that you care for us, that you provide for us, that even when we are sinful, you know who we are, you care for us, and you're involved in our lives. Lord, help us see ourselves as perhaps as part of that nation that's walked away and and that is at odds or hates you. Lord, if there is somebody here in this room today that hates you because they have not been saved by your grace, Lord, I pray, work on their heart. Show them your love. Show them the expanse of your mercy, Lord. And I pray that we would seek after you, search after you, chase after all of who you are for this whole life. Lord, help us to be faithful, obedient servants who love you. Lord, you've shown for your love for us. Help us to love you by knowing more of who you are. Praise this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us this week. If you have any questions about anything you just heard or if we can pray for you, please contact us at info at Until next time, stay in God's word.